Hi there, and welcome to the Everyday Millionaire Podcast. My name is Patrick Francie, and I am your host, and I want to begin by saying thank you for listening. On this show, I am having conversations with seemingly ordinary individuals who have achieved some amazing and extraordinary results in both their life and business. My intention is to inspire and help you learn and grow by having my guests share their journey of how they face and overcome their challenges, but also how they celebrate their many wins. And now let's get on with this show and have a conversation with today's guest. Like many of my guests, their bio does not do them justice to who they are and what they have accomplished in their life. And Joel Gandara is no exception to that experience. He is, however, a renowned life and business coach and dedicated to empowering men to be the very best versions of themselves. Through his very unique coaching approach, he helps men achieve goals, unlock potential, and find true fulfillment in both their personal and professional lives. He has a wealth of experience and a definite passion for sharing his insights. And along the way, Joel has gained a reputation for guiding individuals in improving relationships, their career, their health, and their overall well-being. He is the author of 31 Days to Become a Better Man, and he joins me today in what will be an amazing conversation. Listen in, enjoy. Let's get this show started. Joel Gandara, welcome to the Everyday Millionaire Podcast. Thanks for joining me. Thanks, Patrick. Thanks for having me. Now, Joel, this is the first time we're meeting, which is often the case with my guests. We had a little bit of a conversation leading up to it, but uh, we're going in, you know, really bare bones. And uh, this is a get to know you opportunity. I love your bio and what you stand for. And as I often say, bios never do justice to who my guests are and nobody better to talk about who you are than you. So why don't we kick it off and uh, Joel with, when somebody asks you these days, uh, what do you do? And I know that's loaded for you because you just exited a business. What's the answer to that question? Yeah, so there's no full-time job anymore after decades of working 12-hour days and 16-hour days sometimes. So I have to stop and remember, oh yeah, I don't do all those things anymore. I do other things. I often lead it with, well, I've been married for 21 years to my absolute best friend, Jessica. We have four kids that are thriving in each of their age levels. Uh, and that's a big part of my life, the marriage and and uh, and kids. But I do have things that I continue to do. My wife and I coach folks, not at any specific thing, like uh, in a niche industry or anything. I coach men. My wife coaches women. And my wife's a, re- a registered nurse by trade, but she hasn't done that for over a decade, retired at 30 from that, and has time to do these things. And I, like you said, just sold my business. And now I get to help people just develop a better life. And how do I do that? I've got a book called 31 Days to Become a Better Man. But more importantly, in a book, it's a program where guys go through it with me. And after 31 days, they usually develop some habits to improve discipline, uh, decision-making, relationships, uh, goal-setting, those sort of things. And that's what I get to do nowadays. Well, okay. So I want to unpack that conversation in a minute. But I want to go back to what was the business that you sold? Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah. So I'm going to go even further back, and I'm going to start this off by just preempting it. Love it. I often get questions, and and I have to go backwards. So I came to the United States from Cuba from Cuba on a boat when I was a kid. It was a 12-hour boat ride. There was a storm for four of those hours. It was rough, 
And then we got here, land of freedom, but we had no money and that's normal. Immigrants shouldn't expect to have anything and we did it. My parents did not accept financial help from the government. They worked really hard, made very little money. And I wanted to get out of poverty and I wanted to get out of the bad neighborhood I lived in just outside of Oakland, California, where I grew up. And so what did I do? I did everything I could, sold trading cards, stamps, I did a lot of little things that made me money when I was a kid. So I could buy snacks, so I could buy my own toys. But when I was able to drive and I was old enough, I would go to garage sales and I would buy things and then take them to the flea market. Now I've heard that Gary Vaynerchuk has made that popular. Well, I did that every single weekend uh, growing up through high school. One day I had the luck or the fortune or, or just the right timing. And I found a guy selling underwear samples and I ended up buying them all at a dollar each, 500 of them. Took them in the flea market. I made $3,000 off of my 500. Why? Because I sold them for $6. Why? Because these were jockey brands and everything on the back said $13, $12, $15. And I had a great product. I bought it for a dollar. I sold it. And that beat my $8 an hour job. So I started realizing, well, wait a minute, I can't get unlimited supply, but this is pretty good. That gentleman in California called me every six months for 11 years. And he'd say, Joel, I've got another thousand pieces, 2000. Turns out they were his samples left over at the end of a collection. He's an independent rep. He'd buy them all. He later told me when we became friends, he'd buy them for 25 cents. He'd put on these big trade shows and sell to Macy's and the big stores. And then he'd be stuck with them. I have nothing to do with it. He said, I'm legally allowed to give them away throw them away, sell them, whatever I want. It's a limited amount. And so he called me every six months for 11 years. In the meantime, I kept a full-time job, sometimes a second job, but I did that on the weekends. I quickly discovered eBay. And then I quickly discovered Las Vegas trade shows because I found a brand in Mexico that gave me their distribution. Because imagine, I'm making some decent money off these little bit of products. If only I can get my hands on more. I got my hands on more. I became distributor for different brands. Find you, no coaching. No idea what I was doing. It was a disaster. I lost a lot of money sometimes because I didn't know what I was doing, but I figured it out. I tried to keep my losses small. Well, I acquired 14 competitors in the underwear and swimwear space over the years. Uh, I grew. I got it to seven-figure EBITDA. I had no partners. It was very comfortable. And toward the end, I got it to where I was working, believe it or not, four hours a week. And that happened for about eight years, still making seven figures. And that was very nice. But I got an opportunity in the last six months, and I sold the business. And now I'm out of that. And that's where that gets us to today. Wow. What a great story. I'm led to a question that I often ask my guests. You know, you're an entrepreneur. Is that, you know, by nature or by nurture? So in other words, you started this journey very young. Was it by from what was the interest? So in other words, were your parents driving that bus? Were they kind of going, you need to do this? Were they entrepreneurs? Where did that spark to be an entrepreneur come from because not everybody's wired to do that and and sometimes they think they are and then they find out really quickly no that's way too much for me so what was it for you given that you had both a job and a side hustle at the time sure the great way to think this through because that's a complex question a lot of things lined up for example uh so my, in cuba my mom was a physics teacher high school physics teacher my dad Worked in a government, everything's government there, but in a shop fixing radios and televisions. Well, when we got here, my dad would fix people's TVs and radios for a few bucks in the 80s, back when you would repair things. Now you just throw it away. It's cheaper. My mom cleaned hotel rooms at the Sir Francis Drake Hotel in San Francisco, where we grew up near. And so definite necessity. You know, what my parents earned was, you know, what my parents will earn in their entire life, I earn in a year. 
right? So they earned very little. That put us in a tough situation. We always had food and we always had a roof, but we didn't have a great neighborhood. We didn't have toys and we didn't have all the snacks I would have loved and, and neat, nice shoes and Reebok and Nike. I never had any of those things. So a few things happened. My parents would on the side do several things after work. My mom would cook and sell it to friends, neighbors at the church. My dad, because he was he had electrical knowledge, he would make he would buy plastic piggy banks and drill a hole through them and put a tube and put wires and make a lamp. Right. And I remember after church as a kid, my dad would open the trunk and he'd sell a horse lamb, a soccer ball lamp, and he'd sell all these things and just make a few dollars. And that's literally all it was. Uh, but that did not allow me ever to have those little things. And I mean little till today, I'm a very simple, not materialistic uh person. But I just wanted the little things. And here's what I mean. I had a lunch that was home-cooked meal. I never got to buy lunch at school. I never had the cool Twinkies or the, you know, probably for the best because I had healthy food. But I never got to go after school to the place where the kids would go and buy donuts. This is back when kids, school would end. And we were little kids and we could walk across the street and let us do whatever we want. But I would go hang out maybe, but I could never buy anything. So that was the hunger. It was, I want more money. I hate being poor. And the first thing that started, it was an opportunity because it happened on accident. We have to be aware of situations so that we could take advantage of them. I bought some trading cards called Garbage Pail Kids. They were popular in the 80s. They made fun of the Cabbage Patch craze, those dolls. And I took them to school. And I only had a, two packs maybe that I got over the weekend at my grandmother's house. My grandfather probably gave me the money. I bought them at the corner store. And I went to school on Monday to show everyone. And the kids went absolutely bananas. And I, and they started offering to buy them. And I think I remember the numbers. I think they were about five cents each. And I started getting offers to buy up to 10 cents, 25 cents, a dollar for the really cool cards. And I started to make some money. In the first month of doing that, I bought my own first Transformer robot. It was a $50 <laughs> huge base. It was called Omega Supreme. And I felt like a winner because I got to buy my own first toy. And then it went on from there. I got to buy a car. I got to buy, you know, a, an old used car, but I got to do the things that made me feel normal. And I got to buy maybe some Reeboks or, you know, I got to feel a little more normal. So that's how, that's the genesis of getting into that world. I did not know the word entrepreneur. And so I had already made 500 transactions. I just knew to survive and buy some decent little things. There's so much in what you just shared there, you know, that came to mind for me. There's lots of little rabbit holes that I, you know, my brain goes down, not the least of which is, you know, the innovation and, you know, the need to make some extra cash or in, even make cash. You know, your mom, your dad embraced that. They were, you know, humble in terms of what they did and how they did it. And it was really, you know, how do we make a little bit more money to support the family, put food on the table, pay the rent, whatever that story might be. You know, when I look at what's happening these days economically, when I look at what's happening, you know, from a societal point of view, I can't help but think, you know, what a lesson for your kids, you know, at some point, I'm sure that has been passed on, you know, given how you were brought up, you know, we live those values, we teach those values. There's another part of this that is really interesting to me, which you shone a light on, which is, you know, your why got to be about material kind of things. You know, I want to, and, and I don't mean material as in I want a fancier car, or, or it was like, those are, you know, you needed some foundational stuff and you wanted, a, you know, some toys, which is pretty foundational to being a kid, right? So the point around all this is what you got to in your languaging that you just shared, which was, I got to feel normal. 
that's a big why. Those are big drivers. And when you had that feeling of, hey, look what I did. Oh, look, I get to be somewhat normal because I have this toy or I have this thing or I achieve this result. You know, sometimes we overstep the actual driver of certain things that we do, which is that fundamental feeling of accomplishment, significance, making a difference, having what you set out to do. And, and I, I just don't want to step over that because it's, it's interesting what drives people to do what they do. And uh, underlying all of it, you know, yours wasn't about being grandiose. It was just having some basic things that would make you as a young man feel normal, which you achieved. And that drove more of that. Is that, am I, am I talking out of school here? Or is that kind of a recap of what I heard? So, Patrick, I'm not a very emotional guy, but you stirred up an emotion when you said that because I, you reflected it back to me with deeper feeling of what you read into that. You're absolutely right. I got to this country and three months later, I started elementary school and uh, felt like an absolute loser and an idiot because I didn't understand one word that was said. I went through the entire nine month curriculum and I flunked. They put me back again and I felt like an absolute loser. I started wondering if I was dumb. And I just didn't understand people. I couldn't read. I just felt horrible, right? Here I was just starting to learn my own language as Spanish as a kid, right? And starting to understand the letters and this, and now it all got flipped on me. Mm -hmm. So I felt horrible. And um, man, you stirred that up right now. And and absolutely, I just wanted to be normal. I just wanted to be a kid that got invited to play. And uh, And by the way, it happened pretty quickly. I was always very athletic. I played sports, varsity sports all through high school, four years of it. And, and so that took care of itself quickly. But, you know, when you're a little kid, you just want to play in the playground and nobody's asking you to play because you can't speak to anybody. Mm -hmm. And when they say, hey, do you want to play? And all you hear is blah, 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 blah. And you're a little kid and can't even read body language yet. You just go, wow, nobody likes me. Nobody wants to talk to me. Yeah. So there's a little bit of that. And, you, man, I appreciate you bringing that up because now you allow me to dig a little deeper. I'm always trying to learn. And you've touched on another point up front there is about the children. And yes, we have four kids and that has been my life's mission. And it, this is not on autopilot. I try to live with intention in everything that I do. And one of my biggest jobs on this earth is the legacy I leave with my children. And to me, it's not about them remembering me. That's irrelevant. It's about the way they act and the way they live and the way they'll treat society and their children. And uh, that's a big one for me. In fact, two months ago, I got hired by a, a, an awesome group, entrepreneurs organization, to give a talk on developing independent children. And, and some of those people that invited me to talk is because they know my family and they've seen what we've done. And that is the biggest fear for me is, is not letting everything I did and went through go in vain. I want my children to have a little bit of suffering, you know, in the sense of the good part, like, hey, this is how bad it could be, but you have these opportunities and kind of guide them through how to do better. You know, there's a guest that I had, I'll share this story with you. And, and it was really impactful for me. And a guest by the name of Mark Workington, who I happen to know. He's a, he's a good acquaintance, not a good friend, but a good acquaintance. And certainly when we get together, we have lots of laughs and share a beer or something. And he was a guest on the show. Now he's a very accomplished lawyer and real estate investor and has done very, very well in his life. And his kids are, you know, in that 18, 20 year, 22 year old kind of range. 
And, you know, as we had this discussion and he was sharing a little bit of his history, he was raised by a pastor. So that gives you some idea of income level. His mom was a stay-at-home mom for four kids. So that gives you an idea of like a pastor's salary raising four children, pretty humble beginnings. And yet he came out, he got to school, you know, became a lawyer, very accomplished firm, has, you know, a number of lawyers within his firm, has done very well and created a lot of wealth. And I, in the conversation, I said, so Mark, you know, you're at this point in your life, and I think he's probably 50-something at the time. I go, you know, what are you doing all this for? You got all the money you need. You know, uh, is this just a legacy for your kids? And he happened to be an in-studio interview, which is always great. But he was looking across at me, and he kind of got this shock, surprised look on your fa his face. And he said to me, he goes, Patrick, why would I do that to my kids? Why would I create a legacy like that for my children? He goes... I am where I am and who I am because of what I had to go through to get here. I will not deny my children that opportunity to grow. I'll pay for their education. I'll go to the wall to make sure that they get the best education that they can get. The rest is up to them. So no, I didn't do this for a legacy for my children, although they'll probably benefit from it someday. I would not take that away from my children in terms of their own development because it was because of my background and my humble beginnings that I actually showed up and am where I am today. And I wouldn't deny my kids that. And I went, that's brilliant. And it's kind of what you just said. And I'm not trying to put words in your mouth, but philosophically, as parents, I talk to many, many parents just in the business that I'm in and helping real estate investors. They're, they're doing this all for their kids. I go, okay, well, I can tell you that there's a lot of great real estate deals out there because somebody did it for their kids and their kids got older and went, I want nothing to do with this. So my point of all of this is that, you know, when we, teach our kids values. I think we got to be careful about what we're, what we're doing and why we're doing it when it comes to what we set up our, what we set our kids up for. So I don't know where I'm going with that comment. Other, I just wanted to share it with you because what yeah. you said reminded me of it. I love it. Uh, so something that our children are aware of, other than at 16, you become financially independent in our house. Yep. And there are two that already hit that point, And there are two more that haven't hit that yet age wise. They believe, all of them, and every time I get asked this, I look around and I talk quietly, all four of my children believe there's no inheritance for them. Mm. That's what they believe, because that's the lie we've been telling. Fortunately, they hear me talk enough, so they don't listen to any of the podcasts or TV shows or radio <laughs> shows that I've been on, so they don't know that there will be something there for them. But they will have to have built a lot on their own. And I have actual examples. My kids, all four, have side hustles. Uh, depend, dependent on age is where they're at financially and they have savings and they've done already some pretty neat things financially. And it's because they have that fire because, you know, fear is a good motivator. And that fear that we remind them is your mom grew up lower middle class. I grew up at the bottom and we've developed some things and we've done some great things. Our life is amazing. And we have this constant gratitude because of what the swing of where we were and where we are today. And we want you guys to feel that. So we can't help. We can't just give you stuff. My son just turned 18, my oldest, and he just went and bought his own car, $14,500. That was only half of his savings. And he took that out and we don't give him money. And he's been paying his own expenses since he was 16. So that's on his own. And when I went to the dealer, when he said, dad, I got the car, I think I'm going to buy. I just want you to come for a minute and just test drive it with me. I said, absolutely. We went on his second drive, but I was in it. And, yeah, sure, Ryan, this looks good. You ready to do it? Yeah. 
And I said, you'll need insurance, remember? And he says, oh, no, I already called the insurance company. I set it all up. I already paid for the first one. <laughs> and I was so impressed that, okay, it's paying off. And it's, you know, it was int- here's the interesting part. He wasn't upset that he's had to do this on his own. The level of pride that Ryan had at that moment when he bought his first car, first of all, he hugged me, his eyes watered up, and he thanked me about 10 times. And I kept saying, Ryan, I didn't do anything. I haven't given you a dollar. I haven't done anything. And it was beautiful that he told me, he goes, you're the one who helped me get to this point. I've got $30,000 in the bank and I, I just turned 18. He's a senior in high school. And he goes, I wouldn't have done that had you not taught me how to make money. They know how to make money. They have money. They all have a, a good amount of savings and they invest their money and they invest in things that they can flip and do more with because they have this fear of there's no uh, safety hammock. I'm going to have to do something with my life and I'll be happy to help them afterwards as a surprise. I love that story. Uh, that's so great. And, you know, there's a, I don't know what, some actor, some business guy, I don't know who's, who says, it, you know, he's a, a television interview or something. And he says, you know, I tell my kids all the time, I am filthy rich. Your mom and I will never, ever want for money because I got so much, I don't know what to do with it. You, however, are broke, so I would suggest you get to work. And I love that because it's, you're not being quite as harsh, but it's a fun story. And uh, I think it's a great philosophy, by the way. I don't think we are often doing our kids any service by uh, helping them along the way. You get stronger by falling down and having to pick yourself up. You get stronger by being challenged and getting through the challenges. And I've learned that lesson even with my own daughter. And uh, so I carry that forward. But in all of this, you know, in in what we're talking about today, Joel, and who you've become and how you've evolved. I want to hear a little bit about your book or a lot about your book, because, you know, what you're teaching your kids now, you got how many, what's your split? Is there all boys, half and half? What do you got for boys versus girls? The third one is a girl. Third one is a girl. Okay, awesome. So the point of, which is irrelevant, it's just a question, but the point of it is, is that, you know, in your book and how you got to that, this was really about something that inspired or lit you up enough to say, I want to write a book. I want to put a program together. Tell us a little bit about the book. Say the title again, and then just tell me a little bit about the book. Sure. The book is 31 Days to Become a Better Man. And it's a challenge series. It's every day. You read for about three to five minutes and you execute on a challenge. One day, you might have to have a hard conversation with somebody in your life and you know who that is. And I dig a little bit in the book to help you get to it. Nobody has an issue understanding, hey, okay, I get it. I got to have this difficult conversation. I got to do this thing I've been putting off. Whatever the challenge is for the day, there's 31 unique ones. Nothing's the same, but there always is one physical element. And that's interesting because I think physicality is important. Our brain is part of our physical, but our muscles are part of our physical. It all goes hand in hand. And I think, you know, tell me how you do anything. I'll tell you how you do everything. So I try to address 31 pillars, if you could call it that, of our lives. Uh, Some are easy for some people. Maybe you would find a lot of those chapters easy, but the next guy says, oh, I found those to be difficult. It all depends where you are in your life and your life experiences. And then I do it together in a group. I bring 24 guys together. And plus, I'm in there very active every day. And and kind of cheering them on, helping them out, having some one-on-one conversations for whoever needs it along the way and giving them that support. Now, this all happened organically. Still in my business, making seven figures, working four hours a week at that point. But I grabbed a challenge book that someone else wrote. I read it and I did all 31 days. I pride myself on discipline and finishing what I start. I did the 31 days and it went well. 
And I liked it. And I liked the concept. So then I brought together a bunch of friends, very successful guys. And about 20 of us got together and we did it together. Everybody bought the book. We said the day we were going to start, we formed a WhatsApp. That evolved into a Friday morning, weekly uh, Zoom during the 31 days. We melt. So guys later started telling me what worked. They said the level of accountability with 20 something guys together, cheering each other on and helping each other out. So there's that accountability. But then there's this massive camaraderie, this brotherhood that we formed. My shirt says brotherhood that I'm wearing right now because of that. And here's what happened. That first group were my friends. They're all very successful entrepreneurs. So what happened? They said, this actually changed my life these 31 days. Let's do it again. And then they said to me, but Joel, you know what? You took out a role to really be supportive and help. Please charge. And then all the guys on the Zoom call, yes, charge, charge something, charge a few hundred dollars. Let's do it again. And I came up with a price. And I said, all right, let's make it accessible, but ridiculously cheap for these guys. $199 to go through 31 days intense together. Well, we did the second class. Again, another awesome group of entrepreneurs, plus some of the guys from the first cohort. And the second class, a friend of mine, Kevin Thatcher, took that class and said, Joel, you changed my life because on the finance day, I found $50,000 that were leaking through the bucket in my business, a very successful business, and that's annual. And he showed me those financials, and it's absolutely happened because we focused on finances one day, personal and business. Well, he said, Joel, you can't let this stop. And I go, okay, we'll keep doing classes. He said, no, 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 you need to build a maintenance program. I have ADHD, told to me by multiple psychologists. I move very quickly. By the end of the day, we had the name. It's called Brotherhood. By the end of the day, we had the logo designed. And by the end of the day, it was on the website and 14 guys signed up. So now that was earlier in the year. Uh, it's been less than eight months. We're at 64 guys on this ongoing path. To, yes, having finished the 31 days, but now we're on this ongoing path where we bring amazing authors of you know, entrepreneurship books, self-development books. I've got Dr. Gary Chapman from the Five Love Languages is one of my next speakers. I've got a Purple Heart recipient, Israel Del Toro, whose face got blown off in Afghanistan as one of our next speakers. So we do all these amazing things. Now, around class five, I finished my book because here's what happened. A lot of those guys that had done the class were my coaching clients over the years. And they, they would keep sharing in the class, in the Zooms, in the WhatsApp. They'd say, you know, I like the lesson in this book. But when you were coaching me, you taught it to me a different way, which works better than the book. And then they said that enough times and they started to say, why don't you write a book? I think you do it better than this. And I had a little bit of a moment of who am I to write this book? And then I said, well, wait a minute. I came here on a boat. I grew up from poverty and I built a multi-million dollar company and maybe I can write a book. And I wrote it. And not that it's this massive exploding thing, maybe sold a thousand copy in the first six months. But more importantly to me, what I'm more proud of is got about 250 guys in this first year that when, have gone through the program, 64 of them have stuck around in the brotherhood. And now we're really building something beautiful. And that's the whole gist of what I'm doing. I love it. Now, when you think about, you know, what guy there, and I want to, and, and I'm sorry I, if I misstate her name, is your, did I hear you say your wife's name was Jessica? Absolutely. So let's talk a little bit about uh, your relationship only to the extent that when, you know, when I ask men about, you know, who they've got to thank and all the rest of it, you know, it always, I, I find that with very successful men, it's often, listen, I would not be where I am today if it was not for my wife. Is is that a case for you? Do you, do you have that kind of relationship with Jessica? The relationship that we have on the outside seems fake. Jessica and I are the most real people. We'll tell you how it is. Nothing about us is fake. Years ago, I hired an excellent employee. This is many years, I mean, 15, 16 years ago. He became my right-hand guy. 22-year-old kid started making 
20 something thousand a year. Eight years later, he's making 120,000. Then he went off to start his own business. A great guy that I still have a great relationship with. Well, when he started out with me, and that's why I won't say his name, he got a DUI, a driving under the influence. And I could not lose this kid. He was amazing. The best kid I'd ever met and, and hired. And I said, hey, why don't you live with us? Stay in the guest bedroom because otherwise he'd have to quit because he lived really far and he was commuting. And so we worked it out. His dad would drop him off at work Monday mornings and pick him up Friday evenings. Aside from that, he lived with us. And he did that for six months while he waited to get his license back. One day, in our, uh, our employees were talking, 11 people. I remember this vividly. And one of them said, because my wife would be at work with me and myself, and said, you guys seem almost fake. Like, no two people can get along this well. And John, uh, the person, this guy, he said, I want to say that I lived with them for six months. Nothing that you guys are seeing is fake. These two have an amazing relationship. My wife and I don't say that our relationship's a 10 because we don't want to put a 10 on everything, on anything. So we keep working at it. But we're absolute best friends. As of today, we've been married 21 and a half years. We could probably count fights or arguments on one hand in 21 years with four kids, with businesses that have done very well, businesses that failed, all the ups and downs. 2008, I had six properties and the market crash, we lost property. We've been through some stuff. She's had cancer, uh, uh, another bout of it with radiation. You know, So we've gone through a lot of stuff. And yet we absolutely believe that we are absolute best friends. And I do thank my wife because I'm hard to live with. I am aggressive. Uh, I'm impatient. My predictive index shows that I'm like in the 3% most impatient people in the world. I want action right away. I'm impatient for results, but I'm impatient for action of myself and everyone around me. Uh, so I'm demanding. And man, she can handle all this so well. And we've done a lot of work. We've gone to a lot of retreats and we put them on. And we, you know, so, so uh, I 100% agree that uh, a good spouse, both ways, husband or wife, is part of the secret to the formula of success. And I am no exception. I got very fortunate there. Uh, I agree. And I've been, my wife and I have been together over 30 years, so I get it. You know, there's a phrase that, uh, and, I'll, and I'll say this, I got to qualify it because it's, the phrase is meant to be fun, but it actually is a true statement. And, and for men, there's a phrase that we joke about, which is called, if you want to get rich, marry a bitch. And it's only to say that you need somebody that can kick your ass. You need somebody that can push you and push back and hold you accountable. It's not meant about a personality. It's a meant about that person that has got the wherewithal, to your point, to put up with your impatience, with your, uh, you know, your distractions and your, your aggression or what, you know, in that drive to get stuff done. And you need somebody that has strong, you know, like I often say, I'll joke with Stephanie, my wife, I'll say, it's a good thing is I'm as strong as I am because nobody else could put up with you. And she'll say, you know, and she'll say, yeah, and, and likewise, you know, so it's like, you know, it is really that friendship that we can joke about those things because we know that we push each other, we drive each other, but we take a stand and we call each other out when we're not being true. And uh, if we're, you know, if we're missing a step and these are all great conversations, I think. And so, there's a part of me that when I see and hear a story like yours, Joel and Jessica, is at some point you've probably come to the realization and or is what drove some of what you're doing. And that is a word around purpose. So many people search for purpose and whether you're 
I'm assuming you're consciously aware of it, but what can you tell me about purpose? Because to me, I'm going, here's a dude that is living his purpose and has for a long time, and it's probably even getting more refined as you mature and get along in your business. So what's your thoughts on that, Joel? Yeah. So starting out, I had a simple purpose to get out of poverty. And that's a real thing because you don't feel safe. Uh, I went to a school that there was a lot of gang activity. I remember a friend flashing a firearm, showing it to me in his waistband in high school. I'd never shot a gun in my life, but I saw one right there and that could have been ugly. And there were fights every day. And I remember feeling always unsafe. You look at a big gangster and he'd yell at you, what are you looking at? And, you know, so it's real. Wanting to get out of poverty is legitimate, a good reason to motivate you and get you to the, so that was my purpose. I want to live in a safe neighborhood. I don't want to drive a car that breaks down all the time. I want to feel safe. That was my purpose. And then I'll tell you another thing that really helped me with my purpose. So I came to this country with nothing. And what I mean by nothing, I, I did come with a t-shirt, an underwear, pants, socks, and shoes. And that's all that I came with. I have that shirt that I wore on the boat sitting in my closet. And it's been there since I got to this country as a kid. And so all my shirts are lined up in one direction. So you see it, a side profile. But this one shirt, right when I walk into my closet, is facing me straight on. And that shirt is my purpose. Because see, I have does, a dozen first cousins that I've never met. You know, I met him when I was little, but we left and I don't remember them. It was many years ago. And I feel like I'm here for a reason, almost like I'm the chosen one. They didn't get this opportunity. And if one of them would have gotten that opportunity, it wasn't me. I would want them to succeed. I would want them to build a great life and provide employment and mentor people and guide them to a better life. So I have that responsibility and that pressure on me and I welcome it. I'm not a quitter. I'm not a loser. I, I, I'm a leader. And so I've always accepted that as I'm going to help. I'm going to do that. I'm going to do that thing. So today, and I keep having that because literally I walk into my closet every single day and I have that reminder daily. It's again, it's a, it's a reminder of where I came from, which is a big motivator and it gives me gratitude for where I'm at. But it's also my reminder to keep pushing. You got to keep doing big things. And today I am driven. And I set a number a year ago when I started my men's program. I want to directly impact 10,000 men's lives because I know what I'm doing in my program. I know what these guys bring to each other and how we're doing some beautiful things. And I know what happens because I've met the wives. I've met the kids. Uh, I've met the friends of the guys who've been through my program. And they say, you brought back another guy. He's in way better shape. He's talking differently. He's decisive. He's got discipline. And when a wife tells me, you brought back the man I fell in love with, and it gives me goosebumps. And so I want to do 10,000 of those. In my first six to eight, nine, 10 months that I started this program, I've impacted directly 250 lives. But I know that touches their wives, their kids, hopefully their grandkids. So that's what I want to do. And I think that's my way of leaving this planet better than I, I found it. Uh, you know, I just love what this conversation is about. And, and especially when it comes to you know, having conversations with men. And I've done a, a number of men's groups myself over the years. But when you look at what's happening in the world today, you know, when we look what's transpired over the past four years, you know, Canada is not a, unlike what's going on in the U.S., the divisiveness, the polarity that's being created, the line between, you know, the woke and the awake, the, the left, the right, you know, it is, I'm seeing with young men, particularly, but I think men in general, and I, I, I but we have to focus, you know, I'm going to say focus on young men in general are, I think, uncertain even what masculinity is, what it even means to be a man. And then I think about it and I go, well, 
you know, I'm 65 years old. I'm just an old guy with, you know, old fashioned values perhaps, but I know what's important to me and being a man, how I show up for my family, how I show up for my business, who I am as a leader, being able to take a stand for my values and stand in those values and whatever the fallout might of that might be. But you're in it, you're in it in the trenches in a, in a real passionate way. What are you seeing? Like when it comes to being a man today, it's fucking hard, I think. Or maybe it's not. But what's your thoughts? Absolutely. We're getting all these mixed signals of what's acceptable, what's not. It's almost like we're being taught that for a man to stand up to greet a woman or a man to stand up to offer his chair or a man to hold a woman's door open as she walks through as if almost that's misogynistic and that's a bad thing. Mm -hmm. I can't disagree with that anymore. Now, someone believes that go ahead. I, I believe everyone does them and I have no problem with them. I don't want those values forced on me, on my children, on those around me if they don't want them, right? So what happens? We are eating processed foods that make us very weak. It lowers our energy and makes us dependent then on what? On pharmaceuticals. And then uh, to balance that, you know, counterindication, we're taking another pharmaceutical. Oh, yeah. And we're going through life under anesthesia with a lot of alcohol, with a lot of entertainment, because this is uh, like Rome's uh, bread and circus. A lot of things to watch on television. So what do a lot of guys do? They just want to detach from all the stress because they've got all these mixed signals and they're not winning in their family and they're not winning at work and they're not winning in society. So they want to sit in front of a couch and self-medicate with alcohol and, and pills and all of these things. So many of the guys that I work with start that way. And then they start realizing, I hope that I influence them. You know, I just, me, I just don't drink alcohol. I've never done a drug in my life, not even marijuana. I get it. Some people feel like they need that. But I like to get guys to try these things naturally. And guess what starts to happen? Their testosterone goes up. Because that's one thing we work on. Go get a blood test. And let's see where your testosterone is today. Because if your testosterone is low, guess what you don't feel like? A man. And your grip is weaker. Your voice might be different. Your way you show up with your shoulders back and your chest out, and I don't mean to be some jerk and, and push people around. I've never started a fight in my life. I would never recommend anyone do that or even tempt anyone to fight with you. But, but show up a little bit stronger. So here's some of the things that I've seen. A guy uh, is, well, first of all, watch television right now for children, and you're going to see what the dad is treated like. The dad is always the imbecile of the family. The dad's the dope that doesn't have any idea. It's the children that know more. So you think there's a disrespect problem in our society? Absolutely there is. And I'll tell you something, we had this conversation in our house today. And yes, I have a phenomenal family, four kids that are thriving and great, but we get the influences from the outside. We let one of our children, young, impressionable, hang out a little too much lately over this break that we've been on recently at school with some kids, some friends. And then we started the bad habits started seeing the bad habits. And what I mean by that is whenever I go up to any of my four children and hug and kiss them, they reciprocate, they hug me, they love me. And when we say, hey, can you come here? They always go, yeah, I'll be right there. And they come. But when those things start breaking down, I start really, ah, it's these outside influences from those children that are being influenced by this society, by Disney Channel, by what, you know, you name it. And then uh, it starts coming in and we snip that in the butt. So right now we just made a change with my with one of our kids saying you're going to limit this this and this now because of the behavior that we're seeing we're not like that we're different we're special you guys are always being told by everyone and everywhere we go that you guys are amazing you know when our kids were little 
they would sit at the table at a restaurant for an hour, two hours, and then they'd get up and we would always be commended by all the people around us. You have tremendous kids. That's because we show up in a certain way. If I lay on the couch and drink beer all the day and tell my kids I'm going to do something and I don't do well, guess what? I lose respect. But if I show up healthy and strong and the habits they see me do are train and eat right and jump in my ice bath every morning and they see me doing tough things to build myself up, then they're going to kind of fall in line. And I'm doing them a favor of showing, first of all, I believe I'm showing my daughter and I date my kids every month. We rotate. We have one date. I do and then my wife does separately. So I'll go with my oldest on a date. Then I go with my second. We do about three to four hours together. For my daughter, that's to show her what a man should treat her like and, and how I should be respectful. And I should keep my back to the wall at a restaurant and watch the front door in case there's danger that could hurt her. I want to protect her. I should open the door for her. And my sons, I want them to see what a man is like on an intimate level where it's just him and I for three, four hours. We go out to eat, go out to walk. We go do something together. I think that's the, the importance of showing up properly. I can't adjust society but I can impact myself, my children, and the people that I work. You know, and I love all of what you've said. I totally align with it, Joel. And there's another side of it, which is interesting as well, which is something you said is that don't force your values on me, okay? I have my values, you have yours, and we don't have to share common values. I won't hang out with you, you won't hang out with me, but don't tell me my values are wrong. My values are my values, yours are yours, we don't align go do your thing, have a nice life. I'm not in that program. So that's one side of it. There's another side of it that's really interesting that you point out, and this is the case for adults, but it's imperative for kids. We're a product of our environment, I believe, and we have to make sure that we're putting ourselves in an environment to succeed. So you've got all the men that you've got that are actually consciously putting themselves in an environment that challenges them, that sets a bar, sets a standard, helps them come to grips with what their values really are. Because many people, men included, don't even understand what their values are. They're living in a set of values that aren't even theirs. And then the part about the kids around the environment that you just you know brought to light is, I'll just share a quick story, is friends of ours, very, very successful financially and, and great, great couple. And they got two uh, kids, two boys that went to private schools, went to the same private school, by the way. And, uh, you know, in about 25 years old, they kind of went their own way. They did their own thing. One became a trades guy. Another went into uh, business and very, very engineer brain, very, very smart guy as well. They both are. But the difference in attitude between the engineer brain entrepreneur in business and the guy who works in the trades is night and day, the attitude, and there's a culture within trades, as you know, and this isn't making it wrong. It's just that we're a product of our environment. There's a way of being in a trade. There's the culture with whatever trade you happen to be in. There's a way of thinking about uh, how you get paid or don't get paid, the job you should do, how many hours you should week and work and overtime. And it's just a way of being, right? It is a culture. And it is such a stark comparison to the other brother that's a totally, you know, just in a, a different world in terms of making money and providing a service and being an entrepreneur. It's just, it's so stark, which is, to me, it's just a confirmation that we are a product of our environment. So but how would you explain if they grew up in the same environment that they both went two different directions? Well, that is a great question, isn't it? And I don't have the answer to that. I mean, 
when I, I don't know the intimate details of family, but they both had the same opportunities. They both had the same parents. You know, at some point, I guess, personality comes into play and how kids evolve and how young men evolve uh, plays a part of that. And, and, and the parents are still very active in their lives. They respect the kids where they are, and they're both good kids. Like, And I call them kids. I mean, they're 30-some years old now. But the point is, everybody's a kid to me these days, but the point is is that it really shines a light on how conscious we got to be of the environment we're bringing our kids in. And when we look at what's happening within the school system and what's happening around the teachers setting the bar or the school system, for example, sitting, setting the bar for what our kids know and believe. And I don't want to get controversial in the conversation, but we have to understand that as parents, we have to look at that environment and go, is that the environment I want to raise my kids? Does that school, do those teachers align with my values? Education aside, and that could be a whole new topic, but just in terms of the thought process, in terms of what our kids are being taught in terms of how to show up, how to be uh, manners, all of those kind of moral standards, I guess, if you, if that's the right term. But, you know, anyways, I, I go off on a tangent on that. I don't have a point to it other than to, you know, express it. No, and that's fantastic. I love those. Those are the types of things my wife and I focus on so much. And I think it was Mark Twain, and I think he said something to the effect of, I've never let formal schooling get in the way of my education. Formal schooling is fantastic, and there's so many important things to learn, like basic math. Now, high-level math for the majority of folks is not necessary, I believe, but, but I would rather my kids learn a class on ethics and a class on proper behavior. So what have we done? We've put them in those classes on our own. It's not part of the school system, but my kids know how to ask a girl to dance. They know how to cut food properly and which forks to use for what. And they do this since they're little. And we encourage things. We gamify everything as much as we can. Our kids go to bed at 8 when they're little. And they're very little. And if you want to stay up till 8.30, you have to pass that class. And it's like a week long or two weeks or whatever it is. And, you know, once a week for a couple months. And we, and we do those sort of reward things. And then you know it and you see it that, you know, I value those things. So I love the fact that it's, it's, I get honored and a little embarrassed sometimes when we're in a big room and someone will set it aside and say, hey, I just want to point out that I went to Joel's house and all four of his kids stood up to greet me at the door. And they all made eye contact and they said, hi, I'm Austin. How are you? Nice to meet you. Things like that. I love that. And I think that helps build relationships later. Just like all of our kids have written handwritten notes and put them in the mail to thank somebody for a gift or for an, uh, something, for something. Look, I bought 14 companies before I sold mine. And my biggest secret to success and my biggest secret to building those relationships, these were not, 13 of those businesses were not for sale. One was, and I bought it because it was listed with a broker and all that. The other ones were relationships that I built for many years. And a lot of those relationships, I started with a handwritten note to a stranger who was a competitor of mine. But that led to a phone call saying, hey, I just want to thank you. I've never gotten a note like that before. It was very impactful. Let's get to know each other. Mm. And then 10 years later, I bought their business or eight years or five or sometimes a few months later, depending on the situation, you can't force it. But I find a lot more value in building relationships and treating people right. But I don't see that with children today. You know, I see the stark contrast in my bubble. I think all kids are like that because my four are that way and we're building them toward that. Uh, but when I see other people come over or my kids go somewhere, the kids won't look you in the eye. Uh, now, I'll tell you something interesting though. It happened once with one of our older kids. His friends were all over. His whole team was here. 
And I came home and I said, hello. And, and I got very little reaction from these kids. So when they all left, I pulled that son of mine aside and I said, I want you to understand something. Do you remember what happened when I walked in? Do you think that was acceptable? And he said, no, absolutely not. I can't do anything. Those are my friends. I can't force them. And I said, no, absolutely you cannot. But I'll tell you what, if they want to come into my house again, they're going to greet me when I walk in. And when I greet them, they're going to come and greet me. Otherwise, don't bring them here again. Well, my son had this awesome conversation. I don't know what he said, but it is amazing. The men that have come now, those kids, this is a year ago, two years ago that it happened. When I come in right now in their home or they come over, hey, Mr. Godara, how are you? They are different human beings. So I am so proud that if that 1% that I injected in them that, fine, call me a weirdo, but that got you to behave a little different, that behavior is going to serve you in life later. So we can impact people in more ways than we think. Well, I think what's interesting about all of it, and to me, it's all interesting, but I mean, there's a fundamental is that, you know, you're working with men now in your program that you're seeing the gaps that get created and the trajectory that gets set as a young man. And it's so important to know as parents, and I know parents do the best they know how, and they got all the things, they got their own shit going on, you know? You know, parents are, you know, parents have had their own trauma and their own stuff going on. So everybody's always doing the best they can. But ultimately, when we get really conscious about it, and you look at some of the men that are sharing their insights with you, you realize and you recognize the trauma that changes and shifts lives and that men have to deal with it later on. And yes, it can be said for women, by the way, but just happens to be a conversation around a men's group that you've put together. Uh, you know, I share a story, something I learned many years ago, and you're probably aware of this, and I share it because it's kind of relevant and I think it's important is, you know, I often have asked this question of, of couples, which is, where do you think your son learns how to treat a woman? And their answer generally is from their dad. And I go, actually, that's not the case. They'll learn the standard from their dad, but they'll learn if it's acceptable from mom. And it is young boys learn how to treat women from their mom. And they learn it because what does dad do that mom is okay with? And what does dad do that mom goes, don't be doing that. And they see that, they sense it. So if it's okay with mom, and it's one of the reasons, and I'm not a psychologist, I've just had a little bit of a you know foray into the conversations in the, over the years, which is psychologically, it's one of the reasons that uh, kids, you know, of or are men of abusive relationships are abusive themselves. Because in their world, you know, dad beat up mom or was abusive emotionally, mentally, whatever that might be. And mom stuck around. So it was okay. She didn't take a stand and say, you treat me like that again, I'm gone. Right. And then actually follow through on it. So it's all a long winded way to say there's all these nuances that we have as parents. There's a lot of responsibility and a lot of things to pay attention to. And, you know, it's these little things that go, oh, crap, I never thought of that. Yeah, it is actually the way a woman responds to her husband that teaches a young man how to be treated, you know, and vice versa with your girls. Perspective, Dr. I never thought of that. That's, yeah, that's a great one. Yeah. Um, you know, something about parents having trauma. We all have traumas. But but I think you know, conversations like this, and you hope that people who have those traumas are having conversations like this, develops different ways of seeing things and hopefully a plan of action to improve the performance in our lives. But sure, we may have traumas, but we didn't choose, those children don't, did not choose to be born. So we have to go out of our way to work on ourselves and to show up better. 
because it's not acceptable because it was done to me that I'm going to do it to the next one. That's not acceptable. What if every day they hit this kid with a hammer over the head? Should that kid go hammer 10 people over the head? Absolutely not. We got to stop it somewhere. When we're not aware of our performance and we're just living through life in an anesthetic coma, sure, I can forgive that, I guess. But the moment we go, wait a minute, this is how I was brought up and I'm now aware of what I'm doing. From that day on, it's your fault. Anything you do bad to that kid or to that wife or to whoever, that's your fault because it's you're aware your now. You're a, right. Um, another thing, and this may be controversial, and I'll start it by saying I absolutely love women. I think they're the greatest thing on this world. I love my wife, love my mom, my daughter. I love women. They're beautiful. They're soft. They're nice. They're better people in so many ways. But something happens for little boys in school. When a little boy's in school, he doesn't see his dad too much because oftentimes the dad is away at work all day and the mom might be home when he gets home or shortly thereafter and spend a little more time with that little boy. But in school, for the most part, all he sees are women teachers. So these little boys oftentimes are rewarded with that cookie or that A or the sticker or the pat on the back from a woman. So they get taught to just please a woman, just make that woman happy, tell her whatever she wants to hear, lie to her. And I think that's a bad example. See, Hundreds of years ago, when the boy gets to a certain age, he's going to go work with his dad and his grandfather in the fields, with the horses, with the ironwork, with the woodwork, and he's going to learn how men act. And, and then he's going to learn to please his mom when he's home and his father when he's working with his father. But I think we get a little bit of a one-sided approach, and I'm seeing sometimes that impact because when I tell some of these guys, when I'm seeing the way they're living their life and I mention that to them, they go, you know what? I think you hit the nail on the head. I always wanted to please all my teachers and they were women. I always wanted to please my mom. And then they're not living this genuine life, which by the way, doesn't help anyone because you tell someone, yes, you look fantastic in those, but you're lying to them. That doesn't, that's not, you're not serving anybody. I believe being clear is being kind and having better conversations when we can really relate with each other better rather than just, I'm going to please everyone, but I'm not going to please myself. That's not good. I think you take care of yourself and you respect others and you take care of others. So there's my controversy for the day. <laughs> I love it. I love it. You know, there's a, an interesting part of this conversation that I'd like to kind of shine a light on if we can, which is, I don't know quite where I want to go with it, but, you know, when you're working with men and they're having these discoveries, you know, I would, I guess, first ask you, when you consider who you are today, Joel, you know, there's a part of you, which is, that's, just, you know, that's, these are my characteristics. This is the way I am. This is kind of what drives me. How much time do you really, I don't want to, that's probably the wrong question. Do you actually intentionally, consciously reflect, review, say, how did I do today? How am I showing up? Am I being the man I want to be? Am I being the husband, the father, the leader that I want to be? Are you in a self-assessment mode on a fairly regular, frequent, what is it for you? Do you intentionally kind of define yourself? Yeah, it's, it's because my wife could verify this. It's become my default to debrief on situations, even internally, but even with my wife and my kids, we went through something. Hey, how did that work out? I did it with my employees all the time. We finished the project or we're halfway through or whatever. Let's debrief what worked, what didn't, how can I improve? What could I do better? Uh, you know, I have a conversation with my kids on something and I'll we'll go back to bed that night and I'll tell my wife, what do you think? How'd I do? What do you think about what I said this? What do you think about that? What could I have said better? And, and she gives me that feedback. We have, I think one of the secrets is 
I'm sure with Stephanie, you can agree with this. With Jessica, I definitely believe it. It's communication. There is nothing that we cannot talk about. And we feel so comfortable talking about everything because we've had all the hard conversations. We'll continue to have them when they come up. So I can say, hey, I don't know if I did very well on that thing, whatever it is. And, you know, I review my day. Uh, you can tell a lot about a person by looking at their calendar and their bank account, right? And I look at those things regularly. I review my finances. I know where the money's going. I know where I'm investing. I know if I misspend on something, which is rare. But so I'm reviewing that. I also review my calendar. I look at my calendar probably 20 times a day. I have nothing in my brain. I don't know what I have to do after this. But as soon as we finish, I'm going to look at my calendar. And that's the next thing I have to do. So what happens at the end of the day? I review my day. I see everything that I did. There's a lot of uh, intentionality there. I'm not just running from meeting to meeting. I'm reviewing, oh, that went well. And this thing did this. And I also, I'm, I'm a little bit strange. I keep Google Docs. I keep Google Sheets on things that no one will ever see. These are my thoughts on a subject. If I have a good idea and I go, that's an interesting thought. I'd like to think more about that. But today's not the time because I don't have these other elements yet. That might take a few months to have. Okay, I'm going to schedule that thought three months from now. And it's in my calendar and it's going to pop up. And I go, it says literally, nobody's ever going to see it except me. Joel, think about this because on this date, you thought that was a good idea, but you needed to know more about this, this, and this. And I'll spend 90 seconds thinking about that. I'm like, oh, okay, I'm ready to do that. Let me start taking action on it. Let me contact the people I need to do. Maybe that's a business we can start. Or, yeah, I'm not ready for that. Let me move it another three months. Or I delete it. Right. But uh, yeah, I'm all into self-assessment. I talk the, I walk the talk. You know, there's in the development that we go through, you know, I often say our life is a reflection of who we're being and the decisions we make, the decisions we don't make, the indecision. And we have to take time to reflect, to decide who we're being. So if we don't like our life and we take responsibility for our life. So if our life is a reflection of who we're being and we can really own that, then ultimately, if you're not liking parts of your life, you can't blame what's outside of you. You have to look internally. You have to look and say, okay, how am I showing up? What are the filters I'm viewing this world through? And why am I making the decisions that I'm making? Why am I choosing the relationships and attracting the relationships that I'm attracting? You know, to your earlier, I use this as an example because it's for me, it's really, you know, you, you, you don't drink, you don't smoke dope. You know, I know lots of people who drink a lot and smoke a lot of dope. And although I don't really drink anymore, I've never really been a pot smoker. But I know lots of people who do. But interestingly enough, I've never had that conversation with anybody. And yet, when somebody comes over to our house, nobody says, hey, can we go smoke a joint? It's not even a conversation because it's just not who we are. It's not how we operate. And it is interesting that how we show up and who we are is what attracts. Attracts the like, you know, attract, uh, like attracts like you know, all these memes, they all have meaning. They're all there, those little cliches, because there's truth to them, right? And so when we consider the the life that we have or the life we want to live, we have to then say, okay, who do I need to be to have that? Like to, who's the person that's going, who's the person that's going to have the life that I'm talking about? And we have to show up to be that person, which means you have to be really conscious of what you're thinking, how you're showing up, who and who you're hanging out with, the kinds of conversations you're having. That's my kind of really high level view of the world. Any any comments on that, Joel? Yeah, a lot. 
So I love it when the problem is me, because that's the only person I could really change, right? When, when I'm having a, I don't know, when maybe some time in my life, uh, I thought people were just being negative. Well, I later learned that was me being negative and they were reflecting it back to me. Here's another one. I've been training jujitsu for over three years and I go a lot. I go five to seven days a week and I train quite a bit. I built a place here where many guys come over and we train here as well at my house, at my gym. And in the beginning, I thought they were all a bunch of bullies. And I started getting cauliflower ear and I started getting the most hurt neck and everything was hurting me. And I thought, why are they all so aggressive toward me? And then some of those smarter, high-level guys would pull me aside and say, hey, man, you're being a bully. You're brand new here, but you're coming in hard. You're coming in hot. And you're, it seems like you're trying to hurt these guys, and they know a lot more than me. And right there, it clicked. And I go, that's why they're being that way to me. Now, all these training partners are my friends, and nobody's being a bully. Did they change? Maybe, but it's, they changed because I changed. I brought a different approach. I want to train. Yes, I'm going to put you in danger and try to break your heart, but we're going to stop before it gets too bad. And uh, But I'm not trying to crush your jaw anymore. I'm not trying to put my forearm across your eyes. I'm going to be a more decent human being, and I want, to, I want us all to be here tomorrow and train tomorrow. But now I can make an excuse for it. I didn't know what I was doing, so I was panicking. And, yeah, you're going to kill me, so I want to kill you back. But once you get a little bit uh, wiser and you learn, and I think there's a direct correlation to like, once you approach it a different way, once you start being a little more positive, funny how everybody around you starts becoming a little more positive. So I'm not going to change outside people when it comes to treating me a certain way. I'm going to change the way I am coming up and showing to the world so that they can. And I've seen this with my kids. I had problems with my older boys many years ago when they were little, where they weren't respecting me. And my very smart, very communicative wife said to me, well, you know what? You're not being very respectful to them when they did something wrong. The way you're coming at them is not like, hey, I want to talk to you. You didn't do this right. I need you to do it or you're not going to get that. It was like, why did you do that? I've told you a thousand times. And that's the way I showed up. Mm. And funny, they weren't very respectful. But when I got great advice from my wife and I implemented, oh, wow, my kids are respectful now. But we got to show up the best way. And that's why earlier I talked about being healthy, eating right not eating all this processed food and alcohol and drugs and all these things that bring us down. But if we take the right steps, people all of a sudden start showing up really well. And another thing that came, I wrote myself a quick note as we were talking here, and I don't know how to directly connect it, but I don't want to miss saying this. I have a lady on my street here where I live, in, and I live in a phenomenal neighborhood. One of my childhood heroes lives minutes away. It's Dan Marino, the former quarterback for the Miami Dolphins. You know, I lived 3,000 miles away, and that was my hero, the Miami Dolphins quarterback, and I see him now at Starbucks all the time, and I get, and there's all these athletes, and it's a phenomenal neighborhood, safest city in Florida, it, everything's great. By being surrounded by the right people, it really changed my life. At 38 years old, years ago, when I moved to this neighborhood, I had never run a 5K, ever. I, you know, I jogged for sports and did that, but I never... But I live ne near an ultra-marathon runner, a champion ultra-marathon runner who is an absolute amazing example of a person. She was an attorney for many years, but because she's such a good runner, she just started doing that. And she said, why don't you run a 5K? And I saw her running every day and I saw all the neighbors bike riding and running and everybody, because I surrounded myself by a better neighborhood, the caliber of people brought me to another level. But within a few short years, I ran an ultra marathon. At 38 years old, I had never even run a 5K. It was a punishment to run. 
but I, it became a norm because I started surrounding myself with higher level people. There, there's a, that goes back to what we talked about earlier, which is we become a bit of a product of our environment. And if we put ourselves in the right environment, uh, we become a reflection of that environment. You know, there's a, a phrase, you know, that as you're speaking, it always comes up for me and I use it often, uh, Wayne Dyer quote, which is when you change the way you look at things, the things you look at change. And I think it can't be overused and it's a, always a good reminder. Stephanie and I themed 2024 as clarity equals velocity. And, you know, the point of that statement was understanding that the clearer we are, the less stickiness there is, the less running around in muck. But clarity, you know, at the highest level, clarity equals velocity is, you know, just a high level comment. When you start to break it down, you start to realize it's clarity in relationships. It's clarity in uh, the direction, the vision that we want to have in our life, the clarity of what our values are, the clarity of the stands that we're going to take, the clarity of how we're going to treat people. You know, this is clarity equals velocity. And the clearer we are, which means you have to be thoughtful. Uh, you have to have little habits like you've got, which is making notes to yourself. I journal on a regular basis. I sit down and, and I do a lot of journaling my notepad. Uh, it's electronic, but that's because it carries a lot of notes, you know, and, and because I'm journaling a lot, I'm really having it's the way I know I am is I get really in my head about stuff. And the way for me to kind of clear the clutter in my brain is to release it, which is to get it out in front of me where I can see it and have it make sense. These are all habits. And, you know, for in the context of the theme of clarity equals velocity, it's just a commitment to the next level of communication in our businesses, with our teams, with our partners, with each other, with our family, because that's what keeps us moving forward, which is really where we feel good about what we're doing. And then with the podcast, you know, Stephanie and I have really clear is, you know, we're driven. Our purpose is to be able to make a difference in other people's lives. That's where we get lit up where we get to be a contribution, where we get to be significant, where we get to have and meet really interesting and cool people like you. And I love that part of it. So I, I, I go again, I go on on a bit of a tangent, but I wanted to share that because I love these conversations and especially with what you've got going on in terms of your men's group, how you yourself are living it and evolve your, your work in progress, the, like the rest of your men. And, uh, you know, we're all doing the best we can, but when you can lead a team and give some guidance based on some great experience and your commitment to being the best you can be, you get to be that source of not only inspiration, but source of information, if you will, and a stand, uh, a benchmark is more of the term, I guess, for other men. When you look at the work you're doing with other men, is there a consistent thing that you're seeing? Is there a consistent pattern or a consistent breakdown maybe that you see with the men that you're working with? Yeah, they're, so I work with guys in a group, you know, they do the 31 day class and I get to really get to meet them. And then the ones who do very well in those 31 days, those are the only ones I invite to the brotherhood that is my ongoing lifetime network that I'm building. Uh, so I get to pick the top of the top and it's not a money grab because I could invite all of them and maybe they'll all join. I don't want 24 guys injected. I want two or three or four per class only. So I can slowly build this community that we're building. Um, so I, I have those two different things, but I also coach some of them one-on-one -on -one, and that evolves out of the relationship that we built. So I do get to see different patterns and that it, it always comes down to such basic things like communication, 
huge one. Relationship building, not transactional. Worrying about yourself, as the former Navy SEAL commander Jocko Willink calls it, it's extreme ownership. Blame all the problems on you, not to drive yourself down and hurt you, but rather to say, well, if I'm in control, wow, so I'm in control. I get to decide these things. And so many times we go back to that. When we go back to, oh, what could you have done different? How could you have said that differently to your wife? You don't like the way she reacted and she got upset and now you guys haven't talked in two days. What could you have done? I don't care what she did. I don't care. I'm not going to blame her. I'm not working with her. I'm working with you. I want to know what you could do. Look, I spoke to someone recently, went through my program. I coach him one-on-one and this really shocked me. He told me that his wife was going to have surgery the next day. And, uh, and then that led to, oh, wow, let's stop talking about you for a moment and your business and your employees and all those things. Let's talk about that. Tell me about it. And I was really shocked to hear that he's not very communicative with his wife. This is one month in, so I hadn't heard everything. I'm still bringing in all, all the information in. And I said to him, why don't you go to the store and buy your wife a cart? Because she's going to have surgery tomorrow. It's a big deal. It's a big surgery. And he said, really? You think so? And I said, when's the last time? You wrote your wife a nice card. And he says, I've never done that. This is a grown man in his 50s. He's never written his wife a card. So I interviewed all his employees because I want to get into who that, that person is and how they run their company. And I do that with all the guys that I coach one-on-one and I can really dive in. And I started seeing a lot of failure to communicate properly with all with a partner, with employees, with vendors, customers, his wife. So, you know, I, I can make a list of 50 things, but honestly, communication, relationship building, you take care of those things and you look inward and I think you fix a lot of the problems. Now, I, I did write down a couple of things as you were, you, you, you got me thinking about them. My book starts off with uh, light your fire. What's your passion? What's your why? Like Simon Sinek says, find your why. And I lead guys through an exercise there to develop that. And that's number one. That's the first challenge of the, of the 31 days. Why? Because the rest is irrelevant. If you don't know why you're on this planet, you don't know why you're listening to this podcast and you're kind of living in a, in a fog, start figuring out. I want to listen to Patrick's podcast because he brings value to my life because I want to achieve these things, right? Have a purpose in everything that you do. I think it changes life. You wake up with a lot more fire and hunger and think back when you're 12 years old, what excited you, what sport, what books, what friends, and think of that. That's how I live my life. Like when I was 12 years old and I love to wrestle and I love to play baseball and I love to do these things. Well, that, I live my life looking for the passion and my reason for doing things. The other thing I want to say is that I read a book many years ago that changed my life. And it took me from $50,000 a year to well over a million dollars in income about six years after I read the book. Mm-hmm. And that book was the secret because I started realizing I had a problem. I was a negative Nelly. If you told me, Joel, there is the most amazing thing and I've got nothing to sell you, but I've been buying these products for $10 and selling them on eBay for hundreds, I would say there's a catch there. Nope, Patrick is, something's wrong with Patrick. It's not gonna work. See, I always believe that we have like a little angel on one shoulder, a little devil on the other, and they're both trying to, it's just, I never listened to the angel when I was younger. I always listened to that devil who got in my head and would say, it's not gonna work. Oh, do it, that's ridiculous. And then after I read that book, it took me three days to read it. And then it took me three days to start implementing everything. My life changed. Every time somebody would say, hey, so-and-so's got a good idea on a business. I'd say, introduce me to him. I want to have coffee with him. And an employee would come, or I didn't even have an employee at that time, but later, 
it benefited because I'd accept all ideas. I'd listen to people and I'd test things out. And like I said, it took me from $50,000 a year income to well over a million in about six years wow. from living that life of like, yeah, let's listen to it. Let's be open mic. Great story. Love that. You know, there's a, uh, only because you brought it up, I think uh, Jocko Wilnick, his book, uh, Extreme Ownership has got to be, is a must read for anybody. I think that that book, uh, I read it when it first came out a few years ago and, and it really was, it changed so many things for me in terms of the responsibility that I take and how I hold myself accountable for the results. So I always look at it and go, okay, you know, if I'm not happy with what's going on, where was I the source of the problem and what do I need to change? So I love that book, by the way. And Can only I tell because... you a story about Jocko? Sure. Remember I said I was in the underwear industry for over 20 years? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I bought 14 companies. Well, there was a company in the 90s called Jocko. It was an underwear company in Los Angeles. And the branding was very off-brand of a Navy SEAL commander. It was just this weird kind of underwear. But because I was in that industry, I became friends with the owner in Los Angeles. And as I was buying up brands of underwear and looking for more and filling my pipeline, building relationships, I saw that that brand Jocko wasn't around anymore. And I couldn't, I went to the website, Jocko.com. It was dead. And so I reached out to him. I, had to, I didn't have his number anymore. I called a few contacts. They gave me his number. I called them and I said, Hey, Michael, I don't see your brand up. I don't see what's going on. And he said, I retire. And I said, yeah, great. But did you sell the business? He said, oh, God, no, I just retired. I closed it down. And I said, who owns the website, jocko.com? He says, I do, but it's, there's nothing on it. And I said, Michael, I'll give you X amount of thousands today, and I'll give you 10% of sales if you want to sell me your brand. And he said, let's do it right now. So I bought it, and within a year later, I sold jocko.com to Jocko Willink, and I've gotten to build a phenomenal relationship with him. That's awesome. And so here's how it happened. I wrote to Echelon Front, his consulting company, and I got an instant reply from Jamie Cochran, who's the COO of the company. Phenomenal woman. and. She said, you know, the typical negotiations, well, we understand that, but we own Jocko Fuel, Jocko Podcast, Jocko This, Jocko Books, everything. Jocko's a very successful guy, black home, jiu-jitsu, Navy commander of uh, SEAL teams, and um, Battle of Ramadi, that that book talks about extreme ownership. They killed over 500 insurgents, his team. He's seen it all. He's a New York Times bestseller multiple times. He owns a clothing brand made in America, origin clothing brand, many successes. And uh, she said, we don't really need Jocko.com. Yeah, right. They don't need it. It's the best name for him to own. <laughs> yeah. And they said, what do you have in mind? And so I said, here's what I want. I want to spend a day with Jocko and I'll fly myself out to San Diego, my wife and I, to spend a day with him. I want to work out with him and I want him to become my coach. I want access to him where I could call him whenever I need something. Oh, and financially, I'd like $1. And Jamie said, that's amazing. Let's, oh, and I said, and the contract has to be written by you guys, but it has to fit within one page. Because I don't want some wordy, crazy con. I'm never going to sue anyone. They're not going to sue me. And so Jocko wrote me and said, Joel, I can't believe you're doing this for a dollar. Come fly out to San Diego. Spend a day with me. We're going to go to dinner. We're going to train jujitsu. We're going to come visit my podcast studio. We spent three hours in his podcast. Studio. He signed every book he's ever written. I needed a suitcase to bring all those back <laughs> with me. And, um, and now I get to call him on the phone and ask them questions or text them or email them. And I got to build a phenomenal relationship. Fortunately, I did not need the money because he later told me, I would have probably given you 300,000 for the website. And I said, Jocko, I don't want your money. I want the connection to you and the ability to call you and ask you some questions whenever in my life I need it. And I don't ask all the time, but I get on the phone with him maybe every 
six to 12 months and, and have a chat when they need something. Yep. And uh, just a story about, since we mentioned Jocko. And uh, so in my book, I mentioned extreme ownership. I make everybody who goes to the program read it, uh, or I encourage them. And I make all my one-on-one coaching clients read that book because there we have a reference point of, no, 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 extreme ownership. So whoever has a read, read it, read it. And the audible, the audio version is phenomenal. It's great. I love the audio version of it as well. Love that story. Great story, by the way. So thanks for sharing it. So listen, Joel, as we uh, wind down, uh, you've been very generous with your time. I appreciate that. I uh, like to kind of wind it up with, uh, I would call it some rapid fire questions that are rarely rapid, but we ask them anyways, just to have a, a little bit of fun. And are you ready for a few? Ready to go. Okay, well, we'll warm you up. It'll be real easy. Are you Apple or Android? Android. Android. Are you kidding me right now? Oh my gosh. Okay. I won't hold it against you. I, no, I used to be Android too. I, I, I switched to Apple. Quite happy with the change. Uh, so that means you're your PC? Yep. Wow. I don't know. That's pretty profound. Got it. Do you, uh, do you have a favorite swear word? Uh, you will never hear me say a bad word. Oh, you're one of those guys. I think that but I don't mind what others cost. They can go ahead and do it. <laughs> I, I was told a long time ago by a, a I, I have different versions of guests on the show, and they're like, some like you going, no, no, not really. I don't swear. I go, what the hell? You know, I'll take that back. I do in Spanish. Yo, you do in Spanish. <laughs> okay, well, that makes me feel a little bit better. But there's uh, somebody we shared uh, years ago. He goes, no, nah, I don't swear. I go, I, you know, if you have to swear, you just don't have a good command of the English language. Okay, thanks for that. <laughs> I think that there's sometimes you need that emphasis. That's all I'm saying. It is powerful. <laughs> I get it. When people say certain words, it does drive home that statement. Absolutely. Totally. Anyways, we digress. Favorite movie? Have one? Yeah, Back to the Future, especially part two. Oh, interesting. You were pretty clear on that one. Do you have a favorite tune or a favorite group that you listen to? Mm. I li- I'm very eclectic. I'll go from country music to salsa music to pop music, rap. Uh, favorite tune. I'll tell you what. I used to sell cruises for Carnival Cruise Lines. I live in South Florida where all the cruise lines are based. Yeah. And I would get very pumped up with the Eminem song. Uh, I think it's called like One Opportunity. Mm-hmm. Uh, that would pump me up for sales and I would listen to it on the way to work and get really pumped up and spend 12 hours with a headset on selling the heck out of those cruises. Yeah. Cool. Your room, your desk, or your car, what do you clean first? Oh, I don't know, but I'll tell you what, I don't have to clean too much because I don't make big messes. (laughs) I tell this to my kids all the time. I go, do you guys notice I'm never like cleaning because I don't make a mess. I, I have a rule, Ohio, in business, in everything, only handle it once. So if I find this pen out of place because it fell, I don't just put it somewhere else in the moment. I keep it in my hand until I put it where it goes so I don't have things out of place. You know, I'm built a lot. I'm built similar to that. Like when I'm even, if I'm cooking in the kitchen and stuff, I'm cleaning up as I go along. So that by the time I'm done, my goal is the only thing I'm putting in the dishwasher is the dishes that we ate from and everything else is handled. I always try and operate that way. <laughs> Stephanie, on the other hand, she is an amazing cook, and but she blows stuff up and I always laugh about it. Although we've had some uh, funny discussions about it over the years. If God exists, what do you hear? Want to hear him say when or her say when you get to the gates? Oh boy, that I did. Uh, I I got as close as almost humanly possible to my potential because I think that's the worst thing that we're given these rewards, these 
these amazing opportunities. And if we let them go, to me, that's a sign of failure. And the sign of success is that, man, I did everything I could within my capabilities. You know, I'm not going to become an NBA basketball player. I'm not tall enough. I'm not young enough. I don't have all those skills. Mm -hmm. So that's not expected of me. But man, I could be a heck of a father. I could be a heck of a leader. I could be a heck of a husband. Uh, I could be a good businessman. So I try to be the best at each one of those. And if they, if that God says to me, you did well, good job with what you were given, you did really well. That's it. I love it. And last question, Joel, what are you grateful for today? Oh man, I have a calendar, meaning I have a life that no day ever looks the same. So today I started my day with a workout with a phenomenal entrepreneur here at my house. And we did a workout jumped in the pool, did an ice bath, went in the hot tub, and we talked for 90 minutes. And, and it was beautiful. It was, I get to get into his head and his life and, and, and all these things. And then I went and cleared land with my cousin I was on his land, cut down a bunch of things because we were going to put up a fence and I got to swing an ax and chip wood. And then I got to spend time with my family. And then I get to be here with you. Nothing that I do is anything but what I want to be doing. I don't want to be anywhere right now, Patrick, other than talking to you. When we're done, I know what I'm going to be doing next, and that's exactly what I want to do. That's what I'm grateful for, that I live a life that's exactly how I want it to be. Beautiful. And I, my friend, am grateful for having had this conversation with you. Uh, like you, I am very, very grateful for my life, my health, my wife, all of those things, not necessarily in that order. And I really appreciate the insights and the wisdom that you've shared today in this podcast. Thanks for joining me, Joel. It's been an absolute fun time, Patrick. I appreciate it. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening. If you found value in the podcast, please take the time to rate and review and share with others. Share with your friends. As it is my goal to always improve and to provide the highest value for you, the listener, if you have any comments, suggestions, or questions you'd like answered, please email me at ceo at raincanada.com. That's ceo at reincanada.com. I look forward to hearing from you. And until next time, Patrick out.